I love the fact that these individuals, these suspects, thought they got away with it. And they were living their life forgetting about the victims. And what really I liked was showing up one day, either with an arrest warrant or just to jerk their chains a bit, knowing that one day I'm coming back. And the looks on their faces, I love that. And that was one of my great thrills. This is Cold Case Canada, the murder of 15-year-old Vivienne Morzouche. While most of the episodes in this series, unfortunately, don't have an ending, this one does. And it's a fascinating look at a police investigation that caught a murderer after a case had gone cold for six years. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. Brian Townsend was in need of a fix and some easy money, and Vancouver's Davies Street seemed as good as any place to find it. He waited until he saw a woman walking down the street, her attention placed on the shop windows. He swooped in, grabbed her purse, and took off up Davies Street, trying to lose himself in the crowd. Unfortunately for Townsend, a police officer on patrol in the West End saw the robbery, gave chase, and arrested him. Townsend was taken to the station, fingerprinted, and placed in a cell. The next morning, the 51-year-old appeared before a judge, received a future court date, and was released. As a matter of course, his prints were sent off to the Canadian Criminal Real-Time Identification Services in Ottawa for processing. Townsend was a small-time criminal and crack addict, living in Vancouver's downtown east side surviving on a disability pension and what he could steal. He'd been picked up by the police for small offences, but had managed to get away with an appearance notice and a couple of arrest warrants. His fingerprints had never entered the system. Now, with the theft of a purse, Townsend's prints would help police close a five-year-old murder case. Fifteen-year-old Vivian Mazouche was a slim, blonde, blue-eyed boy who played bass guitar. He was born in France but raised in Montreal by his mother after his parents separated when he was five. Vivian grew into a troubled teen and he started to act out. He ran away to Toronto in April 2000. His mother filed a missing persons report. Not long after he arrived in Toronto, he was arrested for possession of marijuana. Although it was a minor drug arrest, he was already on the police database as a runaway with an outstanding arrest warrant. His parents, who were both in France at the time of his arrest, were told that Viviane would be kept in custody at the Ontario Youth Detention Centre until they arrived to pick him up. But instead of holding the teen, police dropped the charges and released him. The Salvation Army paid for a bus ticket to take him back to Montreal. As his father, Frank Mozouche, a visual artist, later said, he was put on the street without a penny. If parents had done that, they would have been put in jail. Once back out on the street in Toronto, Viviane decided not to use a bus ticket to Montreal. He called his mother from a payphone and told her he was heading to British Columbia to find work as a fruit picker and to practice his English. Vivianne was five foot three and weighed 130 pounds. 
He was still growing and impatient to grow up. He was spiritual, and he told his mother that he wanted to travel to Asia and live in a Buddhist monastery. Vivian travelled with some French Canadians that he met along the way. He and 19-year-old Lucien Leblanc met in Banff and hitchhiked together to Kelowna, a town in British Columbia's interior. Once in Kelowna, they pooled their money, probably what Vivian had left from selling the bus ticket, and bought about $25 each of marijuana and magic mushrooms. The boys camped one night in an orchard near West Bank on the west side of Okanagan Lake. The last time Vivian was seen alive, he was panhandling on Victoria Street, the main street in downtown Kamloops, about 200 kilometres northwest of Kelowna. Two days later, his body was discovered by a couple driving past the Steelhead campground on Kamloops Lake. He was covered in blood and dumped in a ditch near the entrance of the provincial park. Vivian had been beaten to death, his skull fractured by five blows to the top of his head. His body had been in the ditch for at least 24 hours. Vivian's body was lying face up, dressed only in plaid boxer shorts and a t-shirt. His shoes and his army green canvas backpack were missing. This became part of the holdback evidence that would eventually help catch his killer. Because there was no identification on his body, police identified him through his fingerprints. His parents learned of his death through the media. The murder sparked off a massive investigation. Kamloops RCMP conducted more than 500 interviews and generated 250 tips. The only evidence they had to go on was a piece of bloody silver duct tape found about 10 metres from his body with a partial thumbprint and some DNA. The partial print was sent to the Canadian Criminal Real-Time Identification Services in Ottawa, where an analyst categorised it with thousands of other prints from around the country. She entered it into the crime scene database, where it failed to generate a match. This is a report from CFJC Television in Kamloops from 2003. Police and his grieving family back in Quebec are looking for closure in solving this case. Sometime during the evening of July 28, 2000, Vivian was given a ride when he became the victim of a brutal beating. Now that three years have passed and still no leads, the major crimes unit and Crime Stoppers are hopeful someone might come forward. We think that someone knows about this case and that someone probably lives between Kamloops and Cache Creek, Ashcroft area because his body was found in the uh, Savannah area near the Steelhead Provincial Park. Uh, we're also thinking that over the past three years, uh, perhaps the perpetrator of this crime has shared with other people the details of this murder and we're hoping that someone who's in receipt of that information may feel they would like to share the information with the police. Vivian's murder baffled investigators for the next five years. Then they got a break with Brian Townsend's failed snatch and grab back in Vancouver. This is Steve McCartney, a former detective with the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit in Vancouver. A fellow named Brian Townsend was arrested in Vancouver for purse snatching. And that robbery, that purse snatching, caused Brian a whole lot of trouble. Brian did the purse snatching, and as he was running away from the woman on uh, Davy Street, you always hear, where's a cop when you need one? Well, a cop happened to be driving down Davy and saw it, 
And every cop's dream is to see that. And they jump out and they arrest Mr. Townsend. By sheer chance, the same analyst in Ottawa who had received the partial print of Vivian's killer in 2000 also processed Townsend's prints. And even though she dealt with hundreds of prints every week, the unsolved murder of a 15-year-old boy had stayed with her. She noticed enough of a similarity to compare Townsend's prints with a partial thumbprint that she'd processed five years before. While it wasn't close enough for positive identification, the analyst felt that it was still worth sending her findings back to the investigator in Kamloops. Her decision set off a chain of events that would help to solve Vivian's murder. The investigator in Kamloops agreed that the prints were close enough to warrant reopening the case. He contacted McCartney at the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit in Surrey. Puhu is um, it's an amalgamation of the Vancouver Police Department and the RCMP. And their sole intent is to take unsolved files. And what unsolved files are, are files that could be uh, six months old or they could be 45 years old. It doesn't matter. But as long as they are sitting dormant, that's what we work on. So if a host agency has a homicide and they haven't worked on it and they don't have the resources, they may bring it to us, we'll look at it and determine if it's solvable. And if it's solvable, we'll take a run at it. And the beautiful thing is, we were provincially funded, so we could do things that they couldn't do. It was the best job I ever had. I loved it. McCartney says in deciding whether to reopen a cold case, police officers look at the potential for new evidence, and if there is forensic evidence that can be tested for DNA. McCartney was keen to take on Vivian's murder case. It had sat dormant for more than a year, but he felt it was solvable and police were always particularly motivated when it came to catching child killers. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. Police had a partial fingerprint and DNA from an unknown person on the duct tape found near Vivian's body. The duct tape also had Vivian's DNA leading police to believe that the unknown partial print and the unknown DNA belonged to the same person. When they matched Townsend's prints to the partial print on the same piece of duct tape that had Vivian's DNA, police were able to establish a linkage. But because the linkage was still not enough evidence to legally compel Townsend to give up his DNA, McCartney launched an undercover investigation to follow Townsend and attempt to get a sample of his discarded DNA. The plan was to get some cast off from a cigarette butt, saliva on a coffee cup or skin cells left behind on a piece of paper or item of clothing that they could compare to the DNA found at the murder scene. The problem was Townsend would go from his lodgings at Union Gospel on East Hastings Street and smoke crack in a back alley with other junkies. 
the police couldn't get close enough to get any kind of sample without being noticed. We identified him when he came out and we followed him without him knowing we were there. We covertly followed him. It's amazing what skin cells we leave behind. So we're looking for coffee cup. If he goes into a restaurant, has a coffee, finishes the coffee, we want to watch that coffee cup as he's walking out. We stare at that coffee cup and we walk up, put some rubber gloves on. We do that. If he's walking outside and he's smoking, we want to be nice and close and catch him when he discards a cigarette. He keeps walking, we just stare at the cigarette. And we go sight, we put on our glove, put it on. Brian was really hard because Brian, he was a crack addict. What is really neat though is Brian has two sides to him. He has the clean side, the good side, and the dirty side. And the clean side led Brian to go to 312 Main Street, the VPD, and apply for his criminal record check because Brian wanted to volunteer with the elderly. While we're following him, he is ripping people off in Gastown. He stole bikes. He broke into cars. That we saw him. We saw him. Saw him steal a $2,000 bike. McCartney says detectives spent two weeks following Townsend. They watched him steal bikes, break into cars, and sell stolen property. All these offences, though, were too small to get a warrant that could force Townsend to provide his DNA. At one point, a frustrated undercover detective on the detail got in front of Townsend and dropped some cigarettes on the ground behind him. Townsend, who doesn't smoke cigarettes, didn't even look down. Then one day, detectives caught an unlikely break. They watched as Townsend went into the old Main Street police station. He was applying for a volunteer job to work with the elderly, and he needed a criminal record check. The lineup was long, the service slow, and detectives watched as Townsend became increasingly frustrated. After a time, he filled out the form, handed it to the clerk, and left. While the form had been handled by people other than Townsend and was useless as a DNA repository, it did give McCartney an idea, one that he'd seen used in his days as a detective in sex crimes a few years before. How about this? He looked frustrated in the lineup. I am going to create a survey, a mock survey. I'm going to put the VPD crest on it. I'm going to get it printed to make it look like we printed off thousands of these. I'm going to get the chief to sign a cover letter. I'm going to put it in a big envelope. I'm also going to put in there that if he fills it out in two weeks, he gets a free dinner. That's not a dirty trick. That's a trick. Dirty tricks are something that would shock the community. Something like uh, posing as a priest would shock the community. Posing as a uh, person taking a survey, I don't think that would shock the community. Police continued to tell Townsend and followed him to an alley where they found him selling video cassettes that they'd seen him steal from a car. We know that Brian is a crack addict and he does a lot of thieving. He takes his stolen property and he sells it in the unity stations. Brian wears a hat. He's got a long coat on. In our homicide unit, we had this guy that had hair down the hair and he was an undercover operator. We said, okay, well, you go in and buy something. So he was selling uh, video cassettes that he stole from a car. Our guy looks at him and goes, oh, I love that hat, man. He's got an old Cablevision hat. He says, I love that hat. Brian says, oh, really? He says, how much? Our guy says, well, I'll give you 10 bucks. Brian says, 15. Our guy says, 11. And uh, he ends up buying it. So he takes the hat. 
He says, I don't put it on because I don't want my skin cells. He says, so we open our bag, put it in, sealed it. In the interim, I got the letter from Brian answering the questions. He took that envelope, put it in a sealed envelope, and sent it off to the lab with our hat. And we determined that the DNA on the letter and the DNA on the hat, the skin cells on the hat, almost matched the DNA on the tape. This is a home run. We're ecstatic. So this says that the DNA on that duct tape is the same guy who lit the envelope and whose DNA was on the hat. Now they had a fingerprint and a DNA match. They could request a warrant to compel him to provide a DNA sample. McCartney says, though, it was still not enough to convict Townsend for murder. Police conducted a background check on Townsend. They discovered that he'd served in the Navy, but was discharged because of a drinking problem. He managed to clean himself up, he married, and became a devout Christian and a Baptist lay minister. He worked at a food bank in Mission. Later, he began to derail again, and this time he got into drugs. He and his wife split up, and Townsend spiralled downward, ending up in Vancouver's downtown east side. The next step in the investigation was to place Townsend in Kamloops around the time of Vivian's murder. We have all this information, but we know that he could come up with a story. Well, yeah, you know, I found the body, I panicked, and I pulled back the tape, he was dead, and I, I don't trust cops, so I threw the tape and ran. That's a logical story. It's plausible. Of course it is. Police sifted back through the initial investigation, trying to place Townsend in Kamloops. His name didn't come up in the list of tips. He hadn't committed a crime in Kamloops, and he had not used a credit card there either. His address at the time was in Mission. Police found that he had a cell phone through Rogers in 2000, and they were able to pull his phone records. While he hadn't made a call from Kamloops, he had made a call from Red Deer, Alberta, the day before Vivian's body was found. Kamloops would have been the likely route he would have taken between Red Deer and Mission. I'm delighted to let you know that Erin Haken, an accomplished fine jeweller and custom goldsmith, has opened a studio in Vancouver. While Erin throws her heart and soul into all her creations, what she most loves to do is work closely with you to develop a treat-yourself piece. Erin will work with you to source the perfect stone, choose your favourite metal, produce drawings of your uniquely inspired design, and then create a ring that is truly individual to you. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com, and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. Police had placed Townsend in the vicinity of the murder, but McCartney wanted a confession, and he knew that if he could get Townsend to voluntarily give police the holdback evidence, then along with the fingerprint and DNA evidence, getting a conviction would be a virtual slam dunk. We decided that we needed a full confession. We needed to know how he did this, that he did this, and this would be an excellent case. So we decided to do, as a Mr. Big operation, and it was a very successful Mr. Big because we had a lot of holdback evidence. Holdback evidence is something that only a select few know. Holdback evidence was the body position, Vivian's body position, 
was such that his underwear was hiked up and his slaves were spreading. Hold back evidence was the exact nature of the injuries, blunt force trauma, and there were several hits to the head and the back of the head. So when we're investigating murder, we decide what is holdback evidence and we protect that and we write down who knows about that holdback evidence. We get investigators who know about that holdback evidence, we get them to sign a piece of paper that they acknowledge that this is holdback evidence and they don't even tell their wives or their husbands when they go home from a day. Mr Big is a controversial procedure invented by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in the early 1990s to either charge or clear suspects in major cold cases. An undercover police officer acting as a crime boss has the suspect perform what he believes to be a series of illegal activities designed to make the suspect think he is an increasingly important part of the organisation. The cost for a Mr Big can range anywhere from a few thousand to a couple of hundred thousand dollars. McCartney, who is now an instructor at the Justice Institute of British Columbia, says that before going forward with a Mr Big operation, investigators consider whether the case might be solved and the potential for the subject to re-offend. And while the workings of Mr Big cases are now common knowledge, fortunately for the police, the bad guys don't seem to notice. Are you finding the criminals getting smarter? No, I don't think they are. I, and I, and I, I've talked to other investigators about this, how when uh, the media was talking a lot about our undercover operations, that we had a general panic in law enforcement. But I, I don't think that they are getting smarter. I don't think they are uh, watching Fifth State on Saturday night. Mm. And I don't think they're uh, reading books like yours. An undercover police officer was tasked with making a cold approach, the initial contact with Townsend. The operator waited for Townsend to come out from a Vancouver hospital and asked him to help him look for his boss's friend. He gave Townsend $20. After three hours of looking for this fictitious individual, Townsend and the operator went to dinner. The operator asked for Townsend's help the next day. The undercover police officer, or the operator, told Townsend that trust is very important, but it had to be earned. And he ripped a $50 bill in half and told Townsend that he'd get the rest after the work was done. The next day they resumed the search, and Townsend was introduced to a second police operative who had the job of developing a friendship with Townsend. The fictional gangsters put Townsend to work, first having him move packages around Metro Vancouver and then involving him in more important jobs as he gained their trust. Once Townsend was taken along on what he thought was a robbery, where he watched the undercover police officer jam his gun into the mouth of another officer playing the role of victim and demand a bag of cash, Townsend was paid varying amounts of money for each job and told the operator that he liked the rush of a professional job better than drugs. He attended a high-stakes poker game involving 10 members of the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit, all posing as members of the criminal organisation he thought employed him. The game was staged in a high-end hotel room that required a keycard to access. Each of the players came with $11,000 in cash, money Townsend was given to count. Townsend was taken to Montreal and placed in a series of staged scenarios. 
Everything from passing an envelope of cash to a supposedly corrupt customs agent to breaking into a police compound to steal a bag from an impounded car. All these were acts designed to emphasise the gang's motto of honesty, loyalty, trust. Police set up a break and enter at a warehouse that they'd rented for that purpose. Townsend stole a safe the police had bought from Canadian Tire, broke into it and stole a collection of stamps worth thousands of dollars that in reality was owned by another RCMP officer. While Townsend thought he was moving up the ranks of the criminal organisation, McCartney's role was to step up the murder investigation. He went to where Townsend was staying and identified himself as a detective with Vancouver Homicide. He told Townsend that his name had been identified as a person of interest in the death of Vivienne Mazouche at the Steelhead Provincial Park near Kamloops. So six years later, Brian thinks he's gotten away with it. He doesn't even think about poor Vivian. This is what I loved about my job. I loved this. Knocked on the door. Brian opened the door and he sees bald cop wearing a tacky sports jacket, mismatched top, me. And he's either thinking, this guy's either peddling insurance or he's a cop. And I identify myself as a Steve McCartney, I'm thankful for homicide. And your name has been uh, identified as a person of interest for the death of Vivian Merzouch. McCartney made a point of not telling Townsend that Vivian was male, and he purposely didn't give the name the proper French pronunciation. Yet Townsend knew McCartney was talking about a boy. When McCartney asked Townsend for his DNA, he refused and said he needed to call his lawyer. But instead, he called the police officer he believed to be his crime boss. Townsend was now convinced that he was part of the gang. Members of the gang took him to a meeting with the crime boss at the Delta Grand Okanagan Resort and Conference Centre in Kelowna. The meeting was captured on a hidden camera and played back at Townsend's trial. The video shows the undercover Mountie telling Townsend that he has contacts in the police force and can help him beat the charge if he just tells him everything that happened. He tells Townsend... You're the guy who was there. I don't want any bullshit. The video shows Townsend, a grey-haired, heavy-set man, lying on a couch in the hotel room. He describes how he picked up a hitchhiker at a Husky gas station in Revelstoke when he was travelling to Vancouver from Red Deer in a 1977 motorhome. He told the Mountie he beat the 15-year-old with a baseball bat after the boy tried to rob and sexually abuse him. Townsend says he drove to a campsite, stripped off most of Vivian's clothes, which he later ditched in Agassiz, and dumped the boy's body in the ditch. Then he gave the officer the rest of the holdback evidence, what Vivian was wearing and the position of his body. Townsend was arrested for murder. The trial of Brian Townsend, by then 59, took place at Kamloops Law Courts more than seven years after the murder. Steelhead Provincial Park is a popular camping spot in Savannah, but on July 30th, 2000, it became a crime scene. Under the hot July sun, police investigate the discovery of a 15-year-old boy's body lying in a ditch near the park's entrance. The boy would later be identified as Vivian Morzouk, a Montreal teen traveling across Canada with hopes of picking fruit in the Okanagan. Eight years later, 59-year-old Brian Townsend stands accused of his murder in Kamloops Supreme Court. 
Today, the court heard from Corporal Chris Clark, one of the first officers to respond to the scene. Playing a video for the jury, Clark shows the ditch where the 15-year-old boy is found. The boy is seen laying on his back. His legs are spread apart. They are bruised and scraped. He is wearing a t-shirt and boxer shorts. His head has also suffered serious trauma. At the scene, police also collect three pieces of duct tape and show rocks that appear to have blood on them. The court also heard about the teen's whereabouts three days before he is discovered dead. Marion Burfield, her daughter and a friend, were on their way back to Kamloops from Kelowna on July 27th of 2000 when they pick up Morzook in Winfield. The young boy tells them he is looking to pick fruit. Burfield tells him he's going the wrong way, but she says he spoke little English and doesn't think he understood. She recalls how she dropped him off at Riverside Park that night and tells him he could stay at the men's hostel. He says he doesn't have any money. She gives him some food before he leaves. Her daughter Ricky also testified she believed the boy to be about 19 years old and after hearing of his death and his actual age of 15, she tells the court she wishes she had known his real age. She says she would have taken him home and made him call his parents. The trial continues Thursday. Rafalina Suriani, CFJC News. Even with Townsend's thumbprint, his DNA on the bloody piece of duct tape found near Vivian's battered body, and the Mr Big confession, it was still a complicated second-degree murder trial. Prosecutor Sarah Firestone called 35 witnesses and laid out her case in two parts. The travels of Vivian Mouzouche in the weeks leading up to his death and the elaborate undercover operation by the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit years later to get a confession from their chief suspect. Townsend pleaded not guilty and said that Viviane had tried to rob him after the two had shared a couple of joints and then had tried to sexually assault him. Using the once popular and highly successful homosexual panic defence, Townsend testified that he'd been sexually abused as a child that he was scared and outraged at the teen's suggestion of sex and overreacted physically. Townsend said the teen eventually came to him and tried to attack him again, so he bound him with duct tape. He said he didn't want him grabbing him while he was driving. At the sentencing, Townsend, dressed in a red prison tracksuit, showed no emotion as members of the Morzouche family testified how Viviane's murder had devastated their lives. For Frank Morzouk and his daughter Briere, it is the last time they will walk into a Kamloops courthouse. In hours, they will be flying home to France, but not before delivering victim impact statements, describing how the brutal murder of their son and brother has changed their lives forever. In the court, they said so many bad things, and in newspapers as well. And so it was really important for us just to uh, restore that. Briere described her 15-year-old brother as a dreamer bent on traveling across Canada. She and her older brother had also made the trek and little brother was intent on following in their footsteps. Just a little kid, just a dreamer, just uh, wanted just adventure. That, that was it. But he had a family and he's not a bad boy and he's not a prostitute, he's not a... Violent is nonviolent. His family is angry. The teen was portrayed, they say, as a drug addict, a criminal, a boy who made sexual advances to his killer. 
In his victim impact statement, Frank Morzuk says he lives with nightmares, insomnia, a state of prolonged stupor, and above all, the guilt of not being able to defend one's own son. Vivian's mother, Francois Langlade, says she has even contemplated suicide. She told the court, I surprise myself every day when I find the strength to endure. When he ran away shortly before his death, he left his mother this final message. Forgive me for all the bad things I said. I never meant them and know they aren't true. I will never return to school again. I will never lie again. From now on, I am independent. I love you. Rafalina Suriani, CFJC News. Townsend was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 14 years. But as we know, life doesn't mean life, and the minimum parole doesn't mean much either. Townsend was granted escorted leaves as early as 2016 after serving just eight years in jail. The following year, in 2017, he moved into a halfway house with day parole and occasional overnight privileges. Townsend remarried in 2019, while still on parole, and at his most recent parole hearing in July 2020, he asked to be allowed to move in with his wife. The parole rejected that request but did grant Townsend what's called five and two leave privileges, meaning he can spend five consecutive nights away from his halfway house each week. This is despite Townsend's resistance to psychological counselling while in prison. It was a big, big trial. We got uh, conviction. Uh, the judge called him callous and cruel, and he was only sentenced to 14 years, which is a, a loss for us because we thought he should have first-degree murder, 25 years for sex but uh, the judge wouldn't buy it. It made the news in Paris, which was kind of cool. Front page, Vivian's killer found six years after. So that was kind of nice. According to an article in Kamloops this week, dated July 21st, 2020, Townsend, now aged 70, is in the process of legally changing his name. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is based on a talk that retired Vancouver homicide detective Steve McCartney gave at the Vancouver Police Museum. I then turned it into a chapter in my book Cold Case Vancouver, mostly because it was a relief to write about a cold case that was solved and because it's such an interesting look at how a police investigation works. Thanks to Rafalina Siriani and CFJC Television in Kamloops for generously supplying the news clips that you heard in the podcast. Please visit my website, evelazarus.com, for more information on my books and podcasts. And if you'd like to join in the conversation about this and other murders, check out the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. If you haven't already, please check out my first true crime podcast, Blood, Sweat and Fear. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada, and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934, there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher.